man. Hey, did you hear about this one? There's a Russian island called Kolyuchin Island, and it's way up there in the Chuchki Sea, up there in Russia. Nothing really spectacular about it other than its scenery, but uh, yeah, James Cook, that famous raft guide or whatever. You know, I have heard of islands. I've heard of Russia, but I haven't heard of this Russian island, Kolyuchin. So yes, but also no at the same time. No. No, I haven't. Well, he actually spotted it when he was... No. No, I haven't. (laughs) I mean, you... You asked, bro. <laughs> I did. I did ask. <laughs> I expected an answer. Not not that great of one, but that was good. <laughs> well, James Cook, he actually spotted the island when he was cruising around aimlessly on the waters as he and his crew, like, you know, cloud lounged up on the deck in their very revealing cut-off jean shorts while sipping the house special sangria and Mai Tais. Yeah, I remember the uh, the jean cut-off shorts being a prereq right. to being with that crew. Yep. Like, that was yep. just... That was like their thing. Like you had to have a huge that. thing. You, you couldn't be on the ship without them. So, but you know, Cook would name the island Bernie's Island. Oh man, get ready for another weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Always a good time, bro. Yes. Oh, I fucking love it at Bernie's, man. Just always like stressed to the max trying to figure <laughs> out the solutions to all of your most serious problems in life. I know it. And then you, you always feel kind of like you're just pulling around a bunch of dead weight. Yeah. And for what, man? Exactly. But, you know, what are friends for? Yeah, shit. The spice of life and the cookie of life. Friends are the chocolate chips, bro. Cook, of course, he would be killed after you try to, you know, take the king of Hawaii hostage. And the native folk definitely did not see eye to eye with Cook on his attempt to subjugate their leader. And they promptly stabbed him to death in uh, 1779 on Lupercalia of all days, not being Valentine's Day. Oh, shit. Harken back to episode four. Those of you who have stuck with us that whole time. Great work, man. Bringing it back around. And ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't, please go back and check out that episode. It's the history of the saddest day of the year, Valentine's Day. A lot of tears are shed that day. Yeah, and layers of skin. Right, yeah. Too many layers of skin. Anyway, Bernie's Island didn't stick, and it would ultimately be named Kaluchin Island, basically meaning round. But yeah, in 2021, this Russian photographer was journeying across the sea to photograph polar bears. And at some point, the weather took a turn for the worse, and the dude had to anchor there. The island itself has been abandoned since 1992, and there are a bunch of rundown shacks that are still standing. But something else has decided to inhabit these abandoned buildings. Polar bears. 20 of them. It's one thing if it's just like a couple, you know, like one or two polar bears. You're like, eh. 20? 20. Good luck, man. I mean, around every turn... There's a polar bear. On that island. You're like, dude, <laughs> there's, I feel eyes on me. It's like, yeah, you do. Multiple sets. Polar bear homie. <laughs> yeah. You know? And the guy, he uh, he didn't go onto the island, obviously. He took a drone with him, and he took a bunch of really cool pictures with the drones. Um, The bears are just chilling up in the windows, looking out and shit. They just live there now, man. And soon, they'll learn how to build weapons of mass destruction, and we'll just have another group to fear. Right, yeah. Like, he'll come back in a year or so, and they'll all be, like, working out and like they'll be out on the front yard, like doing some push-ups. Yeah, and dude, doing some. Burpees. One of them will be like mixing up protein shakes for the other bears. Like, damn, these bears are getting smart, man. It's on TikTok. That's pretty cool for sure. But did you see this? A new study actually came out that shows that mushrooms that are attached to the same mycelium are actually able to transmit electrical pulses to one another. Wow. And the white coats say that the funguses are utilizing <laughs> a quote-unquote language of at least 50 words. What? That's so cool, man. That's way cooler than my polar bear story. Yeah, dude, it really is. Uh, next time, come prepared, would you? Uh, yeah. But as it relates to my story, I'm telling now, 
One academic paper, the Royal Society Open Science Journal, has said that these groups of mushrooms are regularly having an open discussion amongst themselves. Oh. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. That? Well, just talking the daily goss or what? I mean, a- apparently, yeah. So how does that work? Well, the white coats say this. Quote, Assuming that spikes of electrical activity are used by fungi to communicate, we demonstrate that distributions of fungal word lengths match that of human languages. We found that the size of the fungal vocabulary can be up to 50 words. However, the core vocabulary of most frequently used words does not exceed 15 to 20 words. So basically, they're using these electrodes, right, to probe the shit out of these shrooms. (laughs) And, uh, man, which... uh, we can all agree by now is not a pleasant experience, if you know what I mean. Agreed, agreed. The lead white coat. <clears throat> Sorry, sometimes I just get whew, brief flashbacks. But right. Yeah, it's okay. It's nothing. It's all right. Uh, the, lead, the lead white coats would go on to say, quote, We do not know if there is a direct relationship between spiking patterns and fungi in human speech. On the other hand, there are many similarities in information processing in living substrates of different classes, families, and species. I was just curious to compare, end quote. So anyways, yeah, I mean, that's pretty neat, right? Not something you hear every day. Very neat. Probing shrooms and learning their language. I'm all for it, man. Shrooms are also great for managing depression and other common ailments, by the way, like a stuffy nose or a stubbed toe. Yeah, or like a toothache or a migraine, but only certain mushrooms. Ones that have psilocybin or like Amanita muscaria, which don't contain psilocybin, but instead another psychoactive ingredient called muscamol, which should be Elon Musk's official fighting name. <laughs> yeah. Actually, more like muscamol would be would be better. Yeah, yeah the musky mole, man. <laughs> there, Apparently yeah. he sweats a lot. Oh, man. I like what you did there. He's going to sweat all over Zucks. Oh, dude, you know it. Zuck, Zuck will have him in a leg lock choking him out and he'll just be sweating out. i can't hold him i can't hold him yeah he slips out he just slips <laughs> yeah. out of every fucking yeah. lock he gets in <laughs> yeah he's musk is free again the announcer he's free again oh it's gonna be bruce buffer man <laughs> yes I, I i hope they get bruce buffer there to do that would the be fantastic i bet they will they'd have to they have to though. yeah so uh yeah let's just do one more story and we'll move on yeah, yeah, sure. I'm going to totally outdo your story here. Bull sharts, but go ahead, man. Just try it. Try it. All right. Try, try it. All right. So this Indian couple, as in a couple from India, sued their son and their daughter-in-law for $643,000 or about 509,000 pounds for, get this gut, for not having a child thereby depriving them from having a grandchild. Whoa. Yeah. Actually took them to court over that, huh? Yeah. And the reason given is because all of this, quote, not having a grandchild, has caused them irreparable mental harassment. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, they said Well, in that that. case, there's a number of catchy songs that I'd like to sue um, just because I can't seem to get them out of my head. Once I listen to there them. There you go, yeah. But no, that's pretty crazy, dude. Like parents being that vindictive that the kids are like, no, I don't want to have grandkids for you. And the parents yeah, are like, we're going to sue you then and try to come after your money. Makes no sense. And the parents argued that they spent over 250000 US dollars on training for their son to become a pilot and that they financed their son's entire wedding and that they even, okay, this is probably the best part of all of this. <laughs> okay, yeah, go ahead. They argue that they even arranged for the son's marriage for him, you know, so that, that he didn't have to go through all that hassle of having to get to know someone before he tied the knot, because who the hell wants to do that? Yikes. I don't know what to say about all that. Crazy, crazy. huh? They really held that over his head in this whole lawsuit. So what the fuck? 
Now, obviously, the culture in India is vastly different than here in the United States, and the elderly couple certainly have ground to stand on in their arguments as it pertains to their culture I, and the way they live their lives. I don't have much to add other than that's going to be an awkward family Christmas. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And the desperate wanting to be grandfather would say, quote, the main issue is that at this age, we need a grandchild. But these people talking about their son and his wife, these people have an attitude that they don't think about us, end quote. <laughs> oh, man. That's fucked oh, up, man. That is so self-serving. Yeah, that's crazy. Anyway, those were just a few stories out of 2020, a very strange year, but let's get into why we are here today. Oh, yes. This is why I wake up every morning. It's for this right here, bro. Man, I am so stoked for you to be here with me here in this studio right here, right now. Right here, right now, in this moment in time, this universe, looking at the other parallel universes going, hey, what's up, man? And still being right here with you right now. What's that band? Yes. Right here, right now. Yeah. Right here. Right here. Right here, now. Right now. Right here, right now. Epic. Just the same. Yeah. yeah. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. Wicka, 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 All right, wicka, Wayne wicka. is looking at us really weird. Okay, sorry, Wayne. We're, we're sorry. Like, we're running out of tape. Like, we don't yeah. tape this, yeah. but yeah. Fucking shut up, Wayne. Yeah, man. So anyway, okay. Last week, <laughs> we started part one of Gabriel Wartman and the Nova Scotia massacre that he carried out on April 18th and 19th of 2020, in which 22 people were ruthlessly murdered. We touched on his upbringing and the violence that surrounded him. We talked about his own violent tendencies and his history of criminal activity. We discussed how he obtained the firearms and police uniform that he used and the replica police cruiser that he not only bought at a police auction, but would also use during his attack to keep any members of the community calm so that he could more easily murder them. Oof. This guy was not messing around. He knew what he was going to do. He planned for it far in advance and carried out everything with just calm calculation. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. Brutal. And keep in mind, as the attack was occurring, the local police departments were issuing warnings to the public during the 13-hour attack. So some of the public at large was privy to what was going on. They just didn't know who the attacker was or where that person would be because Gabriel was constantly on the move, going from location to location, stealing new vehicles to stay one step ahead of the police. And I mentioned that some of the public was privy to the attack because these warnings were being issued over Twitter of all things. And not everyone had a cell phone or a goddamn Twitter account for that matter. As an aside to you, did you ever watch that movie? It was called Rampage. Oh, man. I know the title. What was it? What was it about? I want to say I watched it back in like 2015, but it was about this guy who was like had a dead end life. He was living at home with his parents and he was like, you could tell he was like a dark individual and he had been ordering like these parts and things that were coming to his house and his parents didn't know what they were. They never asked. He was basically building an arsenal in his parents' basement. And then he, after all of this planning for months and months and his buddy was like helping him out. He like framed his buddy. He like put on all this armor and went on a, just a killing spree like downtown in his hometown he drove around in a police car or like a car, like just killing people randomly. The police would try to shoot him, but he was wearing this armor and he like couldn't be killed. Like he started out by driving like 
a a van full of bombs into the police precinct so that they couldn't even respond like during his attack. Jeez. And it just makes me wonder if like movies like that influenced this guy who did this in like 2020, you know, highly likely man, because that movie was filmed in Canada. It was like super brutal and super realistic. It was very it was realistic. Released, released in 2009. So yeah, I remember it's watching highly it likely in like 2014. I was like, dude, people could do this. Yeah, um, it's crazy. Anders Breivik over in uh, I think what Norway, uh, he did that same thing. He used a bomb first, blew up the police. I think it was a police station or something like that, and then went on to an island where all these kids were having this huge like rave I don't or know, something event. No, not a rave. It was like a, a like a Boy Scout type thing, Girl Scout, Boy Scout type thing. I don't know. It was something like that, and there were like a lot of people on the island. And he went over there. Crazy. <laughs> anyway, that was just a qu- quick aside. You know, pretty crazy. But regardless, a person impersonating a police officer to the T with a uniform and a replica police cruiser complete with a light bar on top, a front bumper, and all the shiny and official-looking decals all over it was not who anyone was expecting to be this crazed shooter running around. So in the midst of all the confusion and worry, when this police cruiser with its lights on pulls up in your driveway and what appears to be a police officer gets out and walks up to your door, what are you going to do? Open it when they knock or hide? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, the average person, like most people are going to see that happening and they're going to go, okay, this person's here to check on us, make sure we're all right. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, it was like the perfect disguise. It was it was too good, man. It sucks. Unfortunate. But, you know, speaking of that, did you see that naked guy on the side of the road down at the 48th and 7th Park? Yeah. What was that guy on, dude? You ever see anything like that? Holy shit. Not since I watched that movie Mother. Oh, yeah. That's a fantastic film to watch with the kids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'd say you're right. Whoa. What is that? Hey, you hear that? I definitely hear that. What is that? Oh, (laughs) dude, it's already that time? Oh, it is. Cool. Well, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and pin your ears back. It's time for Trey Portray. Yep, yep, I'm paying him, I'm paying him double. Anyways, welcome to Trade for Trade. Our first story is from www.hearyourmail.co.uk. Apparently an adventurer was trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean from Florida to Britain, which is absolutely insane, in none other than a homemade giant hamster wheel. And this oh guy was God. arrested. They arrested him just 70 miles into his journey. Isn't that crazy? Uh, Yeah. This guy's yeah. name was Reza Bellucci, and he was caught attempting to make a 5,000 nautical mile journey in a homemade hamster wheel. Uh, police detained him 70 nautical miles into his journey just off Tybee Island. And uh, this is actually after a three-day standoff with the U.S. Coast Guard. Absolutely <laughs> crazy. Three-day yeah. standoff? Yes. This guy's in a hamster wheel on the ocean. Well, yeah, I say hamster wheel, but really it was a metal drum with paddle wheels on either side, which are fairly buoyant, kind of allowing him to run across the waves. And the police, the USS Coast Guard, intercepted him at sea. So this Iranian national, he's out there, and police are like, what's going on here? So they go to intercept him, the U.S. Coast Guard, and apparently in an effort to keep them from boarding the vessel... He threatened to take his own life with a 12-inch knife, and he told authorities that he had a bomb on his vessel that he would detonate if they came any closer. Finally, after the standoff, he admitted there was no bomb, and officers, you know, 
hopped up onto his boat. He was arrested. He faces federal charges of obstruction of boarding and violation of a captain of the port order, which I didn't know that was a thing, but I have no idea what that is. He's facing multiple charges for that. Damn. Um, apparently he told them that, uh, he was doing this because he was trying to run in the floating vessel from Florida to New York to raise money for charity. But then he came across some complications and that ended up bringing him back to shore. But, uh, yeah, this guy clearly is, he's off his rocker, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Who's doing the shit? Crazy. And it's not even the first time he tried it. So the first time where he had to be quote unquote rescued from a floating vessel was actually back in 2014. He was in something he referred to as a hydro bubble, and this was near uh, St. Augustine. He was attempting a 3,000-mile journey from Florida to Bermuda. Again, he did not make it very far. Oh, man. The Coast Guard had to spend 12 hours coaxing him out of this homemade inflatable bubble after warning him not to do it. Uh, So, yeah, this is far from his first time. Yeah, this guy's got to stay out of the water, man. Get him out of the water. Our next story is from APnews.com. Neurosurgeons investigating a patient's mystery symptoms plucked a worm from a woman's brain. Oh, oh my God. No way, dude. Yes, yes. This is in Canberra, Australia. Apparently, a neurosurgeon who was investigating a woman uh, came in, said she had some brain pain. Brain pain. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> let me let me look. Let me see. Infection problem, woman admitted. Uh, forgetful, that's what it was. Apparently, the woman admitted herself into the hospital after coming. Uh, she didn't come. Um, sorry about that. Not yet. Uh, sorry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the woman who was in the hospital after experiencing forgetfulness and worsening depression over a three-month period came in for a scan, and upon having the scan done, the doctors were concerned about different areas they were seeing showing up in the scan. The doctors called the surgeon, saying we have a patient with an infection issue, and after opening her up, they pulled the worm from her brain. Ugh. Disgusting, dude. Yeah, exactly. How does it even get there? The doctor's theory is that because the woman lives near a carpet python habitat, and she's sort of forages around there and eats their eggs the she contracted the worm from those eggs which then wiggled all the way up to her brain where it was just growing it was growing up there but surprisingly six months after the worm's been removed the patient's neuropsychiatric symptoms have improved they're still there but they have improved Uh, so there may be some some permanent damage but yeah that's absolutely crazy dude don't just eat random things eggs in the jungle like don't don't do that dude a three inch worm just I mean, going through your brain. What the hell? No. Yeah, there's no good that can come of that. Yeah, that's absolutely oh. crazy. So I guess we'll check back in to see if those symptoms ever fully go away or if she's just stuck that way for life. But horrible. Yeah. Careful of those eggs. And our last story from Trey Portray also comes from APnews.com. Six former Mississippi officers have pled guilty to state charges for torturing two black men. Jesus. Man, that's absolutely terrible. Yeah, the article goes on to say that six white former Mississippi law officers pled guilty on Monday to state charges, torturing two black men in a racist assault. All six had recently admitted their guilt in connection to federal civil rights cases for all of them. Prosecutors in the case say that the officers had actually nicknamed themselves the Goon Squad because of their willingness to use excessive force. And not only that, but then to cover up the attacks 
lying, even shooting one of the victims straight in the mouth. I mean, this is absolutely insane. What the fuck, dude? So these guys just go around, and we've touched on this before in previous episodes, but these groups of police officers, they form little gangs, and they go around harassing people instead of helping the community. So, man, the goon squad. These fuckers. Yeah, there's no enforcement of justice whatsoever. Like, for example, in January, the officers entered a house without a warrant, and they handcuffed and assaulted the two men with stun guns, sex toys, and other objects, which that's absolutely insane. Then the officers mocked them with racial slurs throughout a 90-minute torture session, which is absolutely insane to me, and then even devised a lengthy cover-up, planted drugs, and a gun leading to false charges... I mean, they went the full... This is the absolute most corrupt end of corruption. The scale of corruption. Wow, man. Absolutely crazy. Yep. They've pled guilty. <clears throat> um, they agreed to sentences recommended by state prosecutors. So they, uh, they kind of took a deal, so to speak, ranging from five to 30 years. But the judge isn't bound by that. So we'll see like, at the actual sentencing what kind of sentence they actually get. I have a feeling the judge is going to go pretty hard on this one. I, I don't think I don't think the judge would even have a choice, honestly. These guys are going down. I mean, but, they've admitted guilt, right? So, holy shit. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there are some court documents that have been unsealed by the federal prosecutors, and these documents allude to the fact that this might even be only some of the members of the goon squad and that there may be others out there. So I'm sure they're going to have their eyes investigating the department for a they long better. time to come as I they mean, should as they should this isn't the first time these guys have done something like this i mean absolutely insane wow absolutely insane well more on that sad story and i just hope they get what they deserve that's all i have to say about that absolutely and uh one of those defendants hunter Elward, I believe, yes, Elward, he pled guilty to aggravated assault for shooting his handgun in the victim's mouth in what authorities called a, quote, mock execution, end quote, thinking that the weapon would dry fire without the bullet in the chamber, but it fired and messed the victim Absolutely up. Absolutely insane. Not, not cool, man. Well, that is our third and final story for this Whoa. session, this weekly session of Trey Poor. Hey, Harmony. I hear uh, Boxcar Joe's healing up pretty nicely from that surgery a couple weeks back. The dude has never looked better a day in his life. The smile is ear to ear and completely toothless. Well, he sure is happy for having lost both of his legs. Probably because now he never has to work another day in his life, and he can just sit back and collect a government check. You know what I'm saying? Well, that does pay a little better than what you were paying him. Definitely, yeah, but I mean, just barely, though. Well, maybe we can get him in here to do some hip slaps when he's in tip-top shape. Yeah, well, it would have to be pretty high up. More like a pelvis slap. Remember those hip extensions? Yep, yep. Well, just like the knees, they actually didn't go over too well, unfortunately. Oh, no. We were talking about that, too. That poor guy. I know. I know, man. But you know what? He's got this. And he yeah. couldn't be happier. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. what can I say? Yeah, yeah, it's really weird how he couldn't be happier after two failed surgeries that were meant to make him taller, but resulted in him being twice as small as he used to be. Yeah, that's sort of on the lower well, I guess I'd say the upper end of things that can go wrong. It's unfortunate, but hey, you know, what do you do? He's happy. So Coop. Yeah. Coop. Yes. Coop, man. Last week, 
you brought up Lisa Banfield. Now, yes. who is she again? Right, yeah. So in episode one, we brought up the fact that Lisa Banfield, uh, Gabriel's common law wife. And what the hell makes it common law again? I like. I know it's when couples just live together as if they were married without actually getting married. But I mean, is there like a benefit to that? Uh, I mean, as far as I know, you get all the benefits included in the marriage package. Even the eloping Vegas package deal with any number of fake Elvises uh, has full benefits. Well, I mean, like, what about a time frame? Like, can my partner and I say that we are common law after a few months, a couple weeks, a day, a few hours, just a glance, love at first sight? Australian edition? Oh, huh? shit. <laughs> Man. You remember that, that show? show? Yeah. Unfortunately, I remember that show. Yeah. Yeah, there uh, at least that one season we people. watched. Yeah, exactly. That one season we watched. There's some crazy folks in that married at first sight, just putting all their drama on TV for people yeah, to see. Totally insane, open, dude. Oh, and like oh, so many of the marriages just instantly fail after the show is over. And like you know? I think all of them, but one switch partners. Like they just kind of like this <laughs> cycle of whatever. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, it should what? be called like the Ferris wheel of marriage at first sight or something. Yeah, I remember there was that one guy. I don't know if you... You're going to have to dig deep for this one, but do you remember there was that one super weird dude who was like, yeah, I mean, I really like her, but I'm going to have to tell her like every time I have a ejaculation, um, <laughs> yeah. the sperm goes back up into my stomach area. Oh. I've had to have uh, an operation where it just sort of uh, goes the opposite direction. And uh, I, hope she, uh, I hope she has some... I hope she can be patient with that. And I'm like, oh, be man. patient with that. Like, what What are you talking about, bro? That is so weird. Good luck. Yeah, like, what's the plan if you want to have a kid? I know. It's like, uh, anyways. You're just eating, not really eating. You're just, that your cum is going straight to your stomach, man. Yeah, I just don't. Like, what the fuck? I don't see how that could, I feel like that'd be a deal breaker for 99.9% .9 of people out there. But, hey, I, what do I know? I'm just a dude with well, it's a plus for a dude him. With regular sperm, right? I mean, you know? for him, it's like if you have this condition, whatever it is, you know, you need a snack, <laughs> rub one out really quick. Shut the hell up. <laughs> so <laughs> disgusting, bro. Oh man. Anyways, yeah, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll not be checking in on that guy. <laughs> no, no. We watched that episode and or that season. I, I will never watch that again. That's about where I turned it off. Yeah, I was like, oh, maybe I'll watch a few more minutes. No. <laughs> well, once again, we seem to have lost our train of thought and got a little sidetracked there. Yeah, wow. What a ride. Bumpy one. Bumpy one. Yeah. But there is typically a time frame that has become the gold standard for common law marriages. Seven years, apparently. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. First, again, this is virtually impossible to nail down a perfect timeline of events unfolding over these dramatic and terrifying 13 hours. But what we did here, which is always what we do here with our pants on backwards. Yeah, or completely off. Or that, is that we scoured the available sources, police sources, court sources, a shit ton of media sources, all of which contradict all the others' timelines. There is a whole lot of what the prostate doctor calls overlappage. Uh, have, you, have you ever had a doctor tell you that, Scott? <laughs> no, I've not been diagnosed with overlappage <laughs> at this point. So with all that overlappage happening, we just had to put the pieces together in a way that made sense, given the layout of Gabriel's property, as in which neighbors were the closest, etc. And frankly, while we try our hardest to give accurate timelines, sometimes they're not so easy to put together. So, you know, we're just doing our best with what we've got. We're trying to lay it all out for you guys in a way that makes sense. All right. 
we're about to get really serious here, so put your serious hat on and fasten your serious Velcro-strapped shoes. And don't forget to tighten your serious belt at least two notches, just for good measure for how serious this is seriously going to get. For real, though, this is a truly tragic event, and we give our condolences to not only the families of the victims, but also to the entire community of Nova Scotia. And to Canada as a whole. For sure, man. Trudeau has really fucked that place up. Well, he's pretty busy building mansions for himself, so... Yeah, true. Canada, you guys need to do something about that. Yeah. So let's start with the beginning of this entire event unfolding. 53-year-old Lisa Banfield, Gabriel Wartman's common-law wife of 19 years, would be the first victim of his violent attack in Nova Scotia, namely in Portapique de Beer Wentwar, Canada, and those surrounding areas. The entire attack, from beginning to end, will have spanned an area of about 155 square kilometers, or about 60 square miles. It all started at one of Gabriel's numerous properties. He had his log home, a huge garage that was like a cabin as well, and a place he called his cottage out on this vast chunk of land, which was surrounded by neighbors. Some of them were seen as friends to anyone who knew them. He would visit, he would eat dinners with these neighbors, he would do things that friendly neighbors sometimes do together. I know exactly what you mean. Just sitting out back in those fold-up lawn chairs, chewing really hard on the fattest hog of a cigar, Mm. drinking pails. I'm talking literal pails, like you'd put down a well, right? you know, like to fetch water. That's the pail I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Just chugging pails of Alexander Keith's IPA out in the backyard, got a pig's head on the barbecue, just to look at, really. And you got Bobby doing Bobby things. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Bobby. Why you got them spickle feet? Or there in that pile of dirt for a hey, Bobby. Y'all tell me why, dag dabbit. <laughs> yeah. Damn, Bobby. Doing Bobby things. Bobby doing Bobby things. On the night of April 18th, 2020, Gabriel and Lisa were at Gabriel's large garage warehouse with a few friends to celebrate their 19th anniversary together. It was during this little gathering that Gabriel began a FaceTime call with a friend of his, and Gabriel started to discuss a commitment ceremony for his and Lisa's 20th anniversary the following year. This friend is reported to have told him, do not do it. Get out of there, man. Get out of that relationship. And this is when it is reported that Lisa got upset at the situation and said that she was leaving the party and started to walk outside. This pissed Gabriel off, naturally, and Lisa started to apologize, but it was too late. She later said that he was already mad, alluding to the fact that once he was pissed, he was pissed. That speaks volumes. I mean, you have a person say that about you, and it just comes from a place of absolutely knowing like that that's the truth. You know what I mean? And there's no going back. After that point, that's pretty spooky. Lisa had gone back to the main house. She's like, I'm out of here. She went back to the cottage and was already in bed by the time that Gabriel came in. And Lisa would say that he quickly came into the room and you could just feel the anger emanating off this guy. And he furiously ripped the blankets off of Lisa and started to beat her with his fists. Whoa. And after a few moments of this, he stopped and told her to get dressed because, quote, it's done, end quote. Jeez. At this, wow, that's uh, that's insane. Yeah. At this point, Gabriel had started to pour gasoline all around the interior of the cottage, and then he got a gun and made Lisa walk out of the cottage and towards the warehouse, all the while walking in front of him. His intention was to burn the warehouse down as well. Lisa tried to walk behind him, but he wouldn't let her, and he even took her shoes off her feet as he walked through the woods. 
She said that she attempted to run at one point, but of course, as they always do when they're running from a bad guy, she tripped and fell. Oh, a classic scenario. Gabriel yanked her up by the hair and started pulling her towards the warehouse, where he tried to get her handcuffed, but could only manage to get one on as she was fighting against him. That's when he fired off a couple of rounds from the handgun toward her feet. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I could see that stopping her in her tracks, most likely. Lisa was begging Gabriel not to kill her, so he fired off one more round and then shoved her into the back of one of the replica police cruisers he had. After putting her there, he went upstairs in the warehouse, presumably to gather his firearms. And when he went upstairs, leaving Lisa alone, Lisa kicked out the window in the back seat and was able to crawl through and escape to the woods. So after this event was unfolding, about six hours later, Lisa would come out of the woods and go to the neighbor's house. And the neighbor was named Leon Judry. And it was Leon who had called 911, which scrambled police to his house to speak to the most critical eyewitness to the entire event that was currently unfolding around them. Noticing that she was gone, Gabriel just continued on with this mission and doused his warehouse garage with gasoline and then did the same with his other three vehicles. He then lit it all on fire and began his killing spree. At about 6.30 a.m., the police would make contact with Lisa Banfield and take her statements. She told them directly who the attacker was, and he was dressed as a police officer, and he was driving a replica police cruiser. Lisa said, quote, He put the gun to my head to scare me. He'd say that he would blow my head off, so I was scared, end quote. She apparently received injuries ranging from numerous bruises all over her body to fractured ribs to a fractured vertebrae. And the police sat on all of his information and refused to broadcast who the perpetrator was and what he was driving and that he was dressed as a cop. Oh, well, maybe they didn't want everyone going around shooting at every cop that moved, you know? I mean, ugh, it's kind of hard to say, like, what the correct response is in that situation. It is, but they could have put out a great deal of information, but they just didn't. They didn't put out any information. They had an idea of who this person was. They knew what he looked like. They knew what he was driving and they knew that he was armed and hella fucking dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. Like they definitely could have said something. I mean, they had to have something at that point that they could have said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Cause this is six hours into the attack already, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And I'm sure people want to know just anything. Like, what do I look right. out for? You know? And they sat on the information for four hours before finally tweeting random tweets of little bits of information. It was like having to solve this elaborate interactive puzzle that you had to solve through these super cryptic tweets that mean nothing on their own until you conduct all sorts of ciphers to break the code. What's the code? It hasn't been released. Oh. While she was hiding out in the woods in the hollow of a tree, she said she could see all the fires glowing in the distance, almost on every side of her. The time is just prior to 10 p.m. on April 18th. Whoa, so dark. It was at this point that a neighbor who lived across the road from Gabriel, 49-year-old elementary school teacher and mother of two, Lisa McCauley, saw the fires and called 911. Leaving her two young sons inside and making sure they were all safe, she went outside to check on the neighbors to see what she could do to possibly help when the fire truck showed up. At the same time, as she's walking outside, Gabriel is approaching her in the darkness. He shoots her and continues on with his destruction. He then leaves the area in his replica police cruiser and headed toward the home of Greg and Jamie Blair, who lived only one road down from his own. The couple owned a business and selling gas and propane units and had younger children together. Greg and Jamie were outside when Gabriel arrived, and once he arrived in front of the shocked couple, he jumped out of the police cruiser and immediately started to shoot Greg, killing him on the spot. 
Oof. Jamie ran into the house and brought her two sons into a bedroom and told them to hide while she started to call 911. The children hid under the bed, you know, the safest place to be. And while Jamie was using her own body as a barricade against the bedroom door and speaking to 911, Gabriel started to shoot through the door, which killed Jamie. Luckily, he decided not to search the house, but he did fire a few more rounds into the bedroom. He also pulled logs out of the fireplace that were on the fire and spread them around the house. And he opened the propane range so that the gas would permeate the house and the flames would catch and the house would explode into massive fiery boom. I'm pretty sure he did this because he knew that the kids were inside the house. He just didn't want to go looking for them. Bro, that is so fucked up. I can't believe that. Luckily, the boys were able to escape the house and they ran over to Lisa McCauley's house, whose sons were friends of theirs. Luckily, they didn't see Lisa's body due to the darkness. At 10.16 p.m., one of the four boys would call 911 and give them the identity of the attacker and what he was driving. And now for the two boys whose mother was Lisa McCauley, they must be like, our mom's not back yet. Where the hell is she? What the hell is going on? Right, exactly, because they're trying to get away, and then at the same time, you're thinking, where's mom? And they heard the gunshots. Terrible. Man, like, ugh. And at this point in the attack, at least three people had called 911 to report what was going on. At least one of them gave the dispatch the exact identity of the shooter. Gabriel left the Blair's residence and drove to the house of 62-year-old Frank and 61-year-old Don Galuchin. The couple had just retired the year before and were enjoying the reprieve. He would arrive there right around 10.25 p.m. Gabriel had parked in the driveway and went into the home where he shot both of them before starting the place on fire. At that point, he got back into his car and headed toward the home of Peter and Joy Bond. At the same time, two neighbors, Andrew and Kate McDonald, not having the slightest clue as to what was going on, called 911 to report the fire and then got into the car to drive over to see if they could provide any assistance to anyone in need. This is when they encountered Gabriel, who was headed directly toward them. Gabriel would drive right next to them and open fire, shooting two rounds. One bullet struck Andrew's shoulder and the other grazed his head. Both were able to make a hasty escape and survived. Right around 10 p.m., first responders were dispatched. And at about 10.26, the RCMP would arrive in the area of Portapique where they would find the first of the dead bodies. They would also find Andrew and Kate McDonald, who told them who had shot Andrew and what the shooter was driving. So more information being given, right? Still, the RCMP decided not to issue any warnings to the public and wouldn't actually do so until 11.32 p.m. That's so crazy. Like, they have multiple confirmations at this point. You would think like a competent unit would be reporting back to the headquarters, just being like, all right, we have a third description, all matching the earlier previous descriptions that we've been giving. Like, let's issue a bulletin yeah. to the public, tell them to be on the lookout for this individual in a police car, dressed like a policeman, armed and extremely dangerous. Like anything, bro. I mean, I just don't understand. I don't understand. It's crazy. And it gets even worse. And I mean, when they did issue the warning on Twitter, now known as X. <laughs> That's ridiculous because, well, first, not everyone is using Twitter. Not everyone uses Twitter today even. And I refuse to call it X, definitely. Second, it's Twitter, man. That's how people are always going to know it. Yeah. X is not going to catch. Musk is a fool for doing that. And anyways, not everyone was using Twitter in 2020, so not everyone is going to be alerted. Secondly, not everyone had a cell phone in 2020. In order to not access their Twitter account, 
that they didn't have in the first place. Exactly. So whose freaking idea was it to use Twitter? It's just like, it's crazy to me. Really excellent question. In fact, the RCMP would go on to issue more tweets, but they'd only use Twitter to do so, which was a really stupid idea. And it's it could just very so well, informal. Yeah, and it could very well have contributed directly with further deaths. So why wow. Twitter? Why not Alert Ready? Alert Ready is Canada's emergency alerting system. It's connected to cable, satellite television, radio, mobile phones, all to issue critical and potentially life-saving alerts to all of Canada, the motherland. The the motherland? I just want to... The motherland. Oh. oh. Isn't Canada... Canada's the motherland, I, I right? I don't think so, bro. I'm just... No? Sorry, not to derail our conversation, but I just... I don't know. We got to be... We got to have correct information here. Oh, fuck. What is it? I think it's Russia. Canada's Russia? The motherland. The motherland is Russia. I don't. Well, now I'm going to have to look that up. But yeah, more on that later, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Even multiple first responders suggested that they use Alert Ready, but their suggestions were ignored. And this brings us to your question whose idea was it to use Twitter? Right. That genius ship for brains was the director of strategic communications for the RCMP, a certain Leah Scanlon, yours truly. And I want to emphasize was. Oh, was. Okay. Yeah, immediately after the crisis was over, there was a lot of backlash about her decision. Families of the victims and tons of locals would come out to give her a good tongue lashing and bring up the fact that the vast majority of residents in that area of Nova Scotia didn't have internet access, nor Twitter. In response, she would tell the public that she saw no room for improvement in the communication strategy used. And in an interview she gave directly after the attack, she would say, I'm like, I'm super proud, you know. I thought about it a lot. I wouldn't do anything differently. And she would go on to say, There's like no situation room. We're not a human being attached to the police officer in the field that's tweeting live. It just doesn't work like that. The public doesn't know what reality is anymore in terms of communicating. This is how it's done. There's no other way to do it. That's anyone's invented yet. I don't know what other ways you're going to get information like, I can't teleport it. Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Australian. Yeah. I don't know how how she got in that position and made that decision. That's so ridiculous. Absolutely crazy. So after shooting Andrew McDonald with his wife in the passenger seat next to him, Gabriel then drove to the home of retired couple Peter and Joy Bond. The elderly couple could offer no protection for themselves as Gabriel rushed in and ruthlessly shot them both to death. Two brothers, Corey and Clint Ellison, who were only in the area visiting their father for the weekend, had heard the gunshots and Corey decided to go out and look around while Clint stayed back with their father, who told them both not to go looking. Clint and his father heard another gunshot, and that's when Clint then went outside to look around, and he found his brother laying in a pool of blood in the darkness toward the end of the driveway. Clint said he saw a flashlight in the trees nearby, so he ran and hid far in the woods and found a good spot to text his dad, telling him not to call him for fear that it might make his phone light up like the New York City skyline and expose his cover. He would remain hidden for around four hours until the sun provided enough light for him to feel safe enough to come back out. And a quick side note on Clint. After hiding for several hours in the darkness, the police were making their rounds and sweeping the area for the gunmen and victims and survivors, but they weren't prepared to stumble upon Clint running into the darkness towards the woods before the cops yelled at him. And the police were just about to open fire on him. And Constable Stuart Basselt would say, We were getting ready to shoot him. We would have shot him. I'm very thankful I didn't shoot. 
After killing Corey Ellison, Gabriel would travel to where 39-year-old Julene Oliver and 45-year-old Aaron Tuck and their 17-year-old daughter, Emily Tuck, were living. Previously, there had been a disagreement between Aaron and Gabriel where Aaron had come upon some inheritance money and was able to have this chunk of property near Gabriel's. The only thing was, was that Gabriel wanted that property to himself. So Gabriel went to him and offered him $18,000 for it, to which Aaron declined. Gabriel was steaming, and his relationship with Aaron Tuck at that point was nothing but negative. In the aftermath, a friend of Aaron's would come forward and tell investigators that he and Aaron talked about reporting Gabriel's replica police cruiser to Crime Stoppers, but Aaron told this friend that he would not follow through with it because Gabriel had threatened Aaron's life. And the Tucks all appeared to be in the living room when they were all shot and murdered. Oh, man. The gunman would then target the next couple, John Zoll and Elizabeth Joanne Thomas, both U.S. citizens from Albuquerque, New Mexico, who had moved to Nova Scotia in 2017. They were another retired couple who were supposed to be on a cruise at that time, but the planned COVID pandemic forced them to stay home. In the months leading to the shooting, they were discussing selling their home and moving back to the United States. Gabriel had gone inside and shot both of them. It's unclear whether they died from being shot or from their house being engulfed in flames. The grandson, Justin Zoll, would call the police, who told them that there was an active shooter and there was just nothing that they could do about the fire at that time. After slaughtering 13 people, witnesses would see Gabriel speed down a dirt road at about 10.35 p.m. The road would ultimately take him out of town on the back roads, thereby avoiding any possible roadblocks which he didn't really have to worry about because the RCMP only established like one roadblock on a road that they said they thought, quote, was the only road out of the community, end quote. It makes you wonder what he was thinking while he was carrying out this massacre. Like, I wonder if he just thought, wow, I can't believe I haven't been stopped by now. Like, I would have thought I would have heard a siren or someone coming after me or something. But there was just so little done about it during the initial phase I mean, he, he he just like had no nothing barring his way. And he was so deliberate about everything as well. Yeah. Just crazy. Everything just seemed really planned. Like, like I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go here. Yeah. With no interruptions. Yeah. With no wasting time. Just one spot to the next. Like, man, crazy fucking shit. Yeah. So Gabriel, he would head east about 24 kilometers or about 15 miles toward the town of Debert, where he arrived around 11, 10 p.m. It would be here that he would hide out in a small wooded area for around six hours after stashing his car behind a welding shop and out of view. This is also where it is assumed that he changed into his onesie covered with little cartoon images of tiny dinosaurs and warmed himself up a little milk and settled in nicely under a tree for a nap. Oh my God. This guy can nap after all that shit? That is so crazy. I just, yeah. Well, it's beyond me. Nobody knows exactly what he did there, but the RCMP would later find a pair of their own dress boots and a pair of slippers. <laughs> so that adds a little validity to my theory of him napping in his onesie. Yeah. But they I also mean, found a gun holster. That's fair. Ammo packaging and a couple other things that are of no importance. I swear there was a, a fucking baby bottle in there, though. Binky. <laughs> a little binky, yeah. It's seven locations. Within a five square kilometer area, Scott, 13 people lay dead. Officials say that nine of those victims had died by fire. Fuck, man. Can you believe it? You're already shot in your home, just incapacitated, and you can't get out, and then this fire just engulfs you. I mean, it's, it's like any hellscape that you could possibly imagine. You've already been shot, you're laying there in pain, and there's flames and heat all around you. I mean, it's hell. 
At 11.32 p.m., while Gabriel is just crawling into his kid-sized barbie tent for a six-hour respite in his onesie with a bottle of warm milk, the RCMP would issue their first tweet. Quote, Hashtag RCMPNS is responding to a firearms complaint in the hashtag Portapeak area, Portapeak Beach Road, Bayshore Road, and Five Houses Road. The public is asked to avoid the area and stay in their homes with doors locked at this time. The public would not receive another warning or update or additional statements for another eight hours. So they issue this one tweet, a firearms complaint. Well, and not only that, but then the lady has the audacity later after everyone's dead to say, oh, I didn't see any room for improvement. At least take it on the chin and say, hey, I messed this up. I really, this is my fault. I could have done more and I'm sorry to the community. And yeah, they're still going to hate you, but at least you admitted it. I mean, they fucked up. There's no way around it. They fucked up big time. Big time. But whenever Gabriel got up to continue his attack, it was April 19th, right around 5.45 a.m. From the small nook in the woods, he would then travel north toward Wentworth, Nova Scotia. This is also about the time Lisa Banfield would emerge from the woods and head to Leon Jujury's home. Gabriel would travel about 25 miles or 40 kilometers from Debert to Wentworth and would stop on Hunter Road where he knew the couple that lived there. At about 8.50 a.m., Gabriel would arrive at the house of Sean McLeod and Alana Jenkins. It is suspected that Gabriel targeted Sean and Alana because they were corrections officers and most likely had weapons which could have been a potential threat to Gabriel and his plan. He would go into their house and shoot Alana Jenkins and Sean McLeod and then set fire to their home. He would also kill the couple's two dogs. Authorities believe Gabriel had spent about three hours there before setting it on fire, what he was doing as anyone's guess. So this is just another one of those points in the story where you realize like how incompetent the police response was because he's allowed to be there at this place after killing a host of other people for three hours. Mm-hmm. Nothing has touched this guy. Yeah, He hasn't even had one run-in that's been anything concerning for him at this point. Cops did not update the public until 8.02 a.m. by putting out a tweet saying that, quote, there was an active shooter, but that he was still in Portapeak, end quote, even though Gabriel had left Portapeak around 10 hours earlier. So the information that they are updating isn't even correct or accurate, which no, nope. <laughs> that's so crazy, bro. Yeah. As Gabriel was driving away, he encountered 70 year old retired military man, Tom Bagley, who was going over to see what was happening. He was then shot as well. Gabriel would leave that area right around 8.55 a.m. The fire Gabriel had set to the property would cause a very large explosion, which neighbors Lisa Owen and Daryl Ferrier would hear. Daryl would get onto his ATV and head over to Sean and Alana's. He could tell almost immediately that everything was in flames, and Daryl would retreat back to his house, and the couple would call 911, who simply told them they could do nothing as long as an active shooter was on the loose. Very soon after, Farrier's son would come to the property and tell them that he saw Tom Bagley's body near his burned down house. That would be very disheartening for the victims. So you're calling up, trying to get some help the only way that you know how. And they're basically telling them, there's nothing we can do. Sorry. Sorry. Then people are people are finding bodies. And there is an interesting point in time here because it was around this point in time when the police thought all of his cars were there at the house, which were burned now. Uh, they weren't aware that he had a fourth one the one that he took with him. And some cops were speculating that the guy offed himself out in the woods because through the fury of gunshots they could hear in the distance, they then heard like one single pop and then another pop. And so they assumed he messed up on the first shot 
and then killed himself with a second shot. But that wasn't the case at all. Not even close. It's just a, I mean, what do they call that? The Hail Mary of a theory so far from reality or the truth. Oh, yeah, he probably killed himself. It's all good. Nope, nobody has anything to worry about. Like, there's no evidence. No evidence whatsoever that he killed. It's pure speculation. But they're trying to, they're trying to convince everyone, oh, it's cool, it's fine. But by 7.55 a.m., the RCMP would discover that the replica police cruiser that they're looking for was not among the burned-out vehicles on any of his properties in Porta Peak. So now they're finally putting the pieces together on what was going on. At 8.54 a.m., the RCMP would tweet, quote, 51-year-old Gabriel Wardman is the suspect in our active shooter investigation in hashtag Porta Peak. There are several victims. He is considered armed and dangerous. He's described as a white man, bald, 6'2 to 6'3 with green eyes. Along with that tweet, they sent out a photo of Gabriel. So finally, finally, they get something out to the public, but way too late. This guy's got a crazy head start at this point. Crazy head start. And again, not many people have Twitter or a cell phone. Right. So no one's actually getting these updates that they are giving. Very small amount of people. And then they're texting their friends and family. Right. So that's how information is getting out. Right, right. The people are spreading the information. Snails, snails pace. And Gabriel would start to head out of Wentworth, heading south on Highway 4. 65-year-old Lillian Campbell. Gabriel was headed her way. Lillian was married to her husband, Michael Hyslop, and retired together in 2014. Lillian was just out for a morning walk on the morning of April 19th, when right around 9.30 a.m., Gabriel approached but passed Lillian, who thought nothing of his police cruiser passing her. Gabriel then turned the car around, approached Lillian, and then shot her to death. He then turned back around and continued to head south toward the town of Glenholm. It wouldn't be until 9.40 a.m. that the RCMP finally realized that Gabriel had indeed been able to escape the area of Peak and was still driving around murdering people in the replica police cruiser. So all these cops are just in Peak, like, oh, well, he's got to be here. But he's not yeah. in that area. And meanwhile, the rampage continues. And at 9.47 a.m., RCMP Corporal Rodney Peterson would cross paths with Gabriel at the intersection of Highway 4 and Plains Road. Peterson would notify dispatch, but he could not immediately follow Gabriel for whatever reason. Instead, Peterson drove more than a kilometer further, or a little over half a mile, before turning around to catch up with Gabriel. But due to the distance between them and not knowing where Gabriel went, Peterson lost him. Right around 9.49 a.m., Gabriel would pull into the driveway of Adam and Carol Fisher. Luckily, the couple recognized the crazed gunman in the replica cruiser and hid themselves as they called 911. They could do nothing but wait in fear for what they thought would happen next. For whatever reason he had, Gabriel would decide not to enter their home and would leave the property down Plains Road around 9.51 a.m. I mean, when you look at their story in comparison to the other victims, they got just that one in a million lucky. So lucky, you know? It would be just before 10 a.m. when Kristen Beaton was on her way to meet one of her home care patients. Kristen was a continuing care assistant who would visit patients at their home and take care of any needs they may have. On her way to the house, Kristen would briefly pull over onto a gravel pull-off, probably to make sure she didn't forget anything. But as she was parked there, and just after 10 a.m., Gabriel would pull his car right beside her and shoot her to death. Just wrong place, wrong time. Kristen was not only already a mother of one, she recently found out that she was pregnant with her second. Terrible. Yeah, she's pregnant, man. Next, and only about 30 seconds or so behind Gabriel, 
another woman who worked at the same company as Kristen, Heather O'Brien, would be driving toward her home care client's house and would be traveling in the same direction as Gabriel. Ironically, only about 260 meters or maybe the distance of two city blocks from where Kristen had pulled over, Heather would pull over to talk to a friend on the phone. Oh! This is ironic, right? Don't do it. As she was sitting there talking to her friend, she mentions to her friend that she had just heard a gunshot. We can only imagine what was going through her mind as Gabriel quickly drove up next to her, shooting her through the window, killing her. Police do suspect that Heather had witnessed Gabriel shooting Kristen and then was driving toward her in which Heather then tried to get away but ultimately ended up in a ditch. I mean, either way, it, she may have, but we'll never know. She definitely saw it coming, though. We, can, we know that. Yes, for sure. Gabriel then continued to drive southeast down Plains Road, and at 10.17 a.m., as he was driving toward the town of Brookfield, the RCMP would put out another tweet, which was a picture of the replica police cruiser that Gabriel was driving, which looks like any other police car. So I don't, I don't know why they would do that. Yeah. This came more than 12 hours after Jamie Blair had called 911 as her husband was ruthlessly murdered in front of their house and gave them a description of the shooter and the vehicle before she was murdered as well. More than 12 hours, man. I mean, I know Canada gets a bad rep for their slow responses to crisis on occasion, like historically, <laughs> every yeah. time. But I mean... The motherland is a really big country up there, but I mean, this is crazy. So you're saying that the response time is in relation to the country's landmass. Yes. And the United States is larger than Canada. Exactly my point. I see what you're saying. So yeah. Yeah. But really though, I mean, apparently the average response time in Canada is about six minutes, whereas in the United States, it's seven minutes. So yeah. I mean, you know, eh. man, that's a lot of time. In a crisis. Yes, absolutely. When it takes like, you know, average four minutes to be choked to death. Yes. You know, you almost choke two people to death before a person gets it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, uh, a little too late. This is not funny. No, it's not. Jeez, man. Ugh. That's terrible. Horrible. Wow. Gabriel would pull over. <laughs> Gabriel would pull over near an area outside of a gas station in the town of Millbrook at 1025 a.m. where he got out and removed some of his police uniform and then continued southbound on Highway 2. Right around this time is when Constable Chad Morrison and Constable Heidi Stevenson had agreed by radio to meet at the juncture near the small town of Shubenacadie, where Highway 2 meets Highway 224. Chad was already at the designated meeting spot and was waiting for Heidi when, right after 10.40 a.m., Gabriel would spot RCMP Constable Chad Morrison, who was parked on the side of the road at that juncture. Gabriel would drive up next to Chad and fire three rounds as he sat in his car. Luckily... Chad was only injured in the volley of shots and was able to speed away in his car and notify dispatch at 1049 a.m. Later, Chad would say that he thought the car that Gabriel was driving towards him was actually Heidi Stevenson on her way to meet him, and therefore he had his guards down. Oof. Of his own attack, Chad would later say, quote, He had a very neutral face. He wasn't smiling when he came up, but he didn't have a menacing look. It's kind of weird to try and explain his face, but he almost looked like he had a melancholy look on his face, like a sad look on his face as he was pulling up to me. And then I think as maybe as soon as he got to me, that's when like he kind of got a little bit of a grit on his face because he's taking action. There was a little bit of, you know, like urgency on his face um, when he put the gun out the window and started shooting. End quote. I mean, it makes sense. A guy who's carrying out like the vastness of this attack 
because it wasn't just one or two people would have to have some kind of grim determination. You know, you're going to get one of two faces in my opinion, right? You're going to get that person that's either just like the Joker laughing his ass off, like having the time of his life, like just lunacy moment, manic high, or someone who's just set his face. Like, you know what? This is what I'm doing today and just going through the motions of doing it. Yeah. I would say it's like, it's similar to a soldier in a, in war. Exactly. Like they're hyper. That was exactly my thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're 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 out there with the job to do, right? Exactly. I mean, obviously on the flip side of right, right. <laughs> the very right. flip side of this, but no less different kind of in the mindset of grim determination. Mm-hmm. Like, well, this is what I'm doing today, you know? On a mission. Exactly. Gabriel would continue on his way and would very quickly spot Heidi Stevenson in her cruiser driving in his direction. There was a lot that had gone down in the moments right before Gabriel spotted Chad and up until he spotted Heidi, but essentially there was so much police chatter on the radios that it was just a bunch of garbled words and beeps. But right after Chad was shot, he floored it and called into dispatch over the radio. Whether Heidi heard that or not is not clear, but it's also important to note that the police were using different frequencies or channels as well. Because I like to think, man, if if a cop is calling over the radio, I just been shot, I just been shot. You'd think that the other cops in the area would hear that on the radio and be notified, right? Yeah, yes. There would be a sense of urgency of cars responding to that person's location. But if you ever watch clips of a cop being shot and they'd say, I'm hit yeah. or whatever, they'll send like backup immediately, immediately to that location. Officer down, officer down. But as this is reported, you know. it says Chad called dispatch or whatever so that would go straight to dispatch instead of being broadcast around yeah 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 so why would he do that though if that's actually how it happened Uh, why would he do that well fucked up but chad floored the car onto the southbound ramp at the intersection just mere milliseconds before heidi turned onto the northbound ramp that is all the time it took for heidi not to see chad speeding down highway 2 where he headed toward the ehs paramedic base in milford heidi didn't have a lot of time to think. And in her mind, she was just on her way to meet up with Chad as soon as she made it to the other side of this on-ramp. Except Gabriel saw her first and purposely collided with her head on. It's unclear if Heidi was trying to block Gabriel or if she was trying to escape. But how the two cars ended up seems like there was more activity than just a collision because Heidi's front bumper was against the right side guardrail while the back end of Gabriel's car was sort of next to the passenger side door of Heidi's car. Like if he had been like full throttle trying to ram into her and the car kind of shimmied over towards that side. And then he's like backing something. up. Yeah, like, exactly. To block backing her up. in or something is what I'm thinking happened. Right. So the two cars would make contact at 1049 a.m. And five seconds after the collision, Heidi's radio was activated, but nothing was heard. About 15 seconds later, her radio was activated again, and this time the sound of numerous gunshots could be heard. Then, about three minutes later, her radio would be activated again, but again, nothing could be heard. There were as many as 27 witnesses to this event, and at least 27 versions of the story. Well, and that's not a surprise, because we all know 10 people in the room can see one thing happen and each have a different you know, version of what was heard and what was seen. Right. So, I mean, that's nothing new. Yeah. And some witnesses uh, said that Heidi got out of her car and shot toward Gabriel. Others saw Heidi open her door and roll out onto the ground. Others thought they saw Gabriel run up to Heidi's driver's side door and remove her from the car. 
Others thought they saw Heidi sitting on the ground with the door open and her back against the driver's seat. But despite all the varying accounts, two things are certain. Heidi was able to fire off 14 rounds at Gabriel with one possibly grazing his forehead. And the other is that Heidi was outside of her car when Gabriel walked up and shot her multiple times at close range. After that, he took items from her person, which included her handgun and two magazines. Oof, man, that's chillingly spooky. And this is exactly when, at 10.52 a.m., a 36-year-old man named Joe Weber, who had no idea what was going on, would drive up to the same ramp and spot what to him looked like an accident involving two police cars, and he would get out to offer his assistance. No, Joe, get out of there, man. Joe Weber was just out to pick up some furnace oil for his house he shared with his wife, Shonda, and their three daughters, and soon-to-be fourth daughter. He was traveling the same route that he traveled every time he went to go pick up furnace oil just another day. As Joe got out of his silver Ford Escape, Gabriel essentially placed him under arrest and got him into the back seat of the replica car that he'd been driving. Gabriel then took a handgun, reached through the back window, and shot Joe at least once. God, I can't imagine. You get, you go up to this accident, you think it's an accident, you get out to help, a cop places you under arrest, places you to the back seat of the car, and then just reaches it and shoots you. Oh my God. Yeah, and there's just no way to see it. I mean, your brain would just be like, what is going on? Trying to process all of that? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's crazy. Gabriel then took weapons from his car and put them into Joe's SUV before opening the trunk of the replica car and taking something that resembled cardboard and setting fire to the trunk of the car and to Heidi Stevenson's car. The fire he set to the trunk of his own car would end up causing very extensive damage to Joe Weber's body. He then got into Joe's car and proceeded to head south on Highway 224 right around 10.55 a.m. Right, so now um, any of the pointless tweets that have already been sent out are now meaningless yet again because he's not even in the same Mm -hmm. vehicle that he initially left in, you know? Yeah. Later, the entire ramp would be closed off so that the authorities could do their investigations and tow the vehicles away from the area. And the police were, they'd be proud of themselves and patting each other on the back for a job well done. Fair. Fair. Well, later that night, a couple named Eric and Rosalie had taken their dog for a walk and walked up to the ramp that Constable Heidi and Joe Weber were just murdered on. They were walking along and finding all these burnt parts of the cars. And they saw a pile of ashes or something and nudged it. And it turned out that they were a pair of handcuffs. They didn't know which car they came from or which person, but they, they brought the charred handcuffs home. And they said they were pretty badly burned. So guess what they do, Scott? I really, at this point in the story, have no idea. You're going to have to tell me. They would bring them into the house and decide the RCMP should know about the cuffs. But they figured that the cops wanted them back looking like they just came out of the hands of a seven-year-old. Out of the hands of a... What? Yeah, because they're like, you know, in a sweatshop, hammering chains and shit. Oh, okay. Well, yes. Sweatshop joke. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's where handcuffs come from. Sweatshop. Right, right, yes. So they grabbed some WD-40 and took a wire brush and went to town on these burnt cuffs. And when they were done, they gave the cuffs to the police to run forensics. But at that point, there was just literally nothing on the cuffs. They destroyed any evidence that could have been on them. Regardless, the cuffs were sent to a lab for analysis anyway. And the shocking results were that there was no DNA or anything anywhere. (laughs) Yes, of course. Good job, Eric and Rosalie. Wow. Great. Great job. Okay. I mean, not that it really matters, but... Right. No, but still still like, yeah, I mean, but yeah, whatever. Okay. 
Gabriel would drive directly for the home of 54-year-old Gina Goulet, who lived in Shubenacadie. She was no stranger to him as they were both dentists, and he, in fact, had offered her a job at his own office, an offer she was happy to refuse. Gina had beat a form of cancer in 2016 and was apparently going through another battle as this terror shook the community, the world, really. Absolutely. On the morning of the 19th, the morning of all this going down, Gina, having knowledge of what was happening, told her daughter that a co-worker or colleague had warned her to make sure that all of her doors and windows were locked because Gabriel knew exactly where she lived. So she, like, she was fearful of this guy, and she thought he was coming for her. And guess what? Right around 11.06 a.m., Gabriel would drive up to Gina's home and park behind her house. Gina, obviously in a crazed panic, watched as Gabriel ran up toward her door. She attempted to hide in a bathroom in her bedroom, but it was of no use. Gabriel was easily able to break into her house and locate her. He would execute her as she begged for her life. He would also shoot her German shepherd. (sighs) Just want to take a second on this one imagining the pure fear so this person already is scared of this individual knows that they're ca- what they're capable of tries to get away being in the safety of the home the person busts in i mean at that point just the blind fear that you'd be feeling it's just it's just insane to you're be. in the bathroom right and you hear doors breaking it's the classic scenario it's like every movie oh ever God. yeah can't imagine Gabriel would exit her house and transfer his weapons and other shit into Gina's gray Mazda 3 hatchback and head to his next location. He would make it about 13 miles or 21 kilometers before having to pull into the Irving Big Stop gas station in the town of Enfield at approximately 11.23 a.m. He would pull up next to a pump but remain inside of the car. Less than one minute later, all by chance, Constable Craig Hubley, a police dog handler, with an emergency response team member, would pull into the same gas station and would pull up at a separate gas pump right next to him without an idea of who this driver was. As the constable began to feel his own vehicle, both officers couldn't help but notice this guy in the driver's seat next to them who seemed to be acting a little strange. Then they noticed that he had a head wound that was bleeding. Hence, they think possibly one of Constable Heidi Stevens' bullets had grazed his head. Obviously, this wasn't a normal situation. And then they recognized the guy as Gabriel Wartman, Nova Scotia's public enemy number one. Yeah, at this point, things are getting out right. It's been over 12 hours. The story is loose. People know about this guy. They've heard the name. They have a rough idea of what he looks like and what he's been up to. You know. Yeah, and, and later, uh, Constable Craig Hubley and the other officer would say that his picture information was on the department's wall, and they were really studying his picture. And that's how they're like, that's the fucking guy. That's him. Nice. Now, there is speculation as to what actually happened next. But the official narrative is that right as the officers realized who it was, Hubley yelled out, Benny, it's him. At that moment, Gabriel looked directly at him and was raising a handgun, which turned out to be Constable Heidi Stevenson's gun. But as he did so, both Constable Hubley and Constable Ben McLeod would raise theirs as well and fire a combined total of 23 rounds, most hitting their target. Constable Hubley would testify that he believed Gabriel was raising the gun to shoot at him, which may very well have been the truth. But others say that he was trying to commit suicide. Well, either way, I mean, Chance finally turned against him and he was killed. And it's a good thing, too, 
because no doubt he was going on to kill way more people than he already had. Mm-hmm. There's just and, no doubt about it. I mean, I could see him wanting to commit suicide because he wanted to be in control of everything, right? I doubt that he wanted to be killed by police because he wanted to be in control. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, there's there's, but a high probability that you're correct. But at the same time, he also, if he was this murderous, if he was in this rampage, you'd think that you'd also want to just kill as many cops as he could, too. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say. It is. And we'll never, like earlier, we'll never know. Yeah, I could, it could see either way. I, I think he was, this is my personal opinion, that he was so conditioned to killing people on this day, and he'd already killed so many that what was killing another person, you know? I think he was raising his gun to try to kill the officer so he could get away. Right. I think so, too. I think so, too. So the time was 11.27 a.m. After more than 13 hours, Gabriel Wortman was pronounced dead after removing him from Gina Goulet's car and placing him on the concrete at the Irving Big Stop truck stop gas station. So the aftermath, this obviously happened during the height of the planned and orchestrated COVID scare and worldwide shutdown. So thankfully, there weren't more people outside doing things. No shit. Damn. Can't even imagine how worse it would have been like if people weren't locked down, like if this wasn't happening in the middle of everybody being told they can't leave. But yeah, the now highly distrusted and disgraced prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, would ban 1,500 different makes and models of military style assault weapons and variants of semi-automatic rifles only 12 days after the massacre. He would also continue robbing the people of Canada to build mansions for himself, which he continues to this day. But that's another side story. Another side story. Lisa Banfield, the common-law wife of Gabriel, along with her brother James and her brother-in-law, Brian Brewster, were all charged with unlawfully purchasing and transferring ammunition which Gabriel used in his attacks. When charging them, the police made it abundantly clear to the public that the three defendants had no idea that Gabriel was planning the attack. So, I mean... I mean, yeah, but allowing this person, like... And then the unlawfully purchasing and transfer. There's something shady going on, man. Something yeah, shady. they were just trying to throw charges. I don't know. But on February 5th, 2021, the lawsuit was changed to include that the three defendants helped Gabriel in preparing his attack by providing that ammunition. Oh, man. But eventually, those charges would be dropped and would be cause for yet another embarrassment for the RCMP. <laughs> I mean, maybe they figured, let's just keep it going. <laughs> you know, let's just keep right. dropping the ball. So ridiculous. Uh, do you remember Leon Jujri, Scott? Oh, yeah. From the beginning. Yes. Yeah. He took in uh, uh, Lisa Banfield. Yes. Yes. Well, unfortunately, on October 30th, 2022, Leon would take his own life after battling the last couple of years with survivor's remorse oh, or survivor's guilt. Man. Most of his friends had been murdered by Gabriel, and he once dated Lisa McCauley. He wanted desperately to leave the area, which would forever be tainted by which would forever be tainted for him. But he could never make it happen. After the attack, Leon would be interviewed for a television segment, and he would say, quote, "Living here is a complete nightmare. All I see is my friends that died, and fires, and SWAT teams, and I don't even want to be here anymore." End quote. I mean, you honestly, you can't blame him. It's no. just like having to be surrounded by all those memories and everything. And obviously, the RCMP got a heck of a lot of negative feedback from all of this. Initially, it was their horrible response time to various serious reports coming in. 
they opted to only place a small handful of officers in charge of those reports rather than make them a priority. Then they took a few steps back after assuming that the gunman was going to or had already committed suicide, thereby allowing him to more easily access victims. Then somehow they thought that they had blocked off the only road out of Porta Peak while leaving the well-known back road nicknamed Blueberry Field Road completely open. Then they decided to use Twitter and only Twitter to issue warnings to the public. And their first warning was simply telling people that the RCMP that the RCMP was responding to a firearms complaint, while their second Twitter warning would come eight hours later. That's a full night's rest, Scott. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's that's a ton of extra time for people who would get that tweet and then hear nothing else and be like, wait, what? Like, are we going to talk a little bit more about that? Right. <laughs> you know, like expecting some kind of a follow up stream of follow ups <laughs> at the yeah. least, you know. And why the hell would you use Twitter to issue emergency warnings of a gunman instead of the alert ready system that was specifically designed to issue such warnings? Leah Scanlon. Also, the RCMP waited nine hours to release the identity of Gabriel Wardman to the public, which was information that they had been sitting on for who knows how long because it was no secret that Gabriel was very well known to the police in the area. And then they waited another three hours, so a total of 12 hours, to release the fact that Gabriel was driving a fake police car and was dressed as an officer. I mean, these are all things they should have led with, you know? Like, that should have been included in the very first update. Absolutely. They knew, before this happened, they knew that he had a fake police cruiser. They knew he had weapons. And then when reports come about a dude with guns and a fake police cruiser, what the hell? You know who that's going to be. Exactly. And when the town of Trudeau offered their police force to assist the RCMP, the RCMP scoffingly declined, only to go request more RCMP officers as backup, which took over an hour to get. That's insane, too. Like, you got other (laughs) precincts that are chipping in, like, hey, let us help you. And they're like, nah, we're good. And then later, the RCMP tried to protect their asses by trying to say that the replica police car and uniform did not contribute to any deaths. This, of course, was not true. We know that many of the victims were lured in by a false sense of security at the sight of what appeared to be a perfectly just police officer and a police cruiser. For instance, Lisa McCauley, Christian Beaton, Joey Weber. Just for example. Yeah, there's no way that those guys would, you know, if it was like some crazed murderer in a car, probably wouldn't have stopped. You know, but the police car, the uniform, the gun, I mean, it just all adds up to like, oh, this is supposed to be happening. On March 30th, 2023, the Mass Casualty Commission, which is the group that oversaw the incident, would release its report, which was very critical of the RCMP and for good reason. And it gave 130 recommendations. 130 recommendations. My God. Over half of those were specifically for the RCMP to get their shit together. Whether they've gotten their shit together by now is still up for debate. Well, we have 131 years or 130 years to figure it out. So maybe we should go up there and do some digging. Let's do it. And so now, Scott, as you know, every major event in past and modern times comes with it a number of theories or conspiracy theories that get people's blood boiling red hot on both sides of the aisle, actually. Both those who believe the theories and those who don't. Yeah, it's a good way to wind people up in these situations. But at the same time, it's also a good way to make people aware that this kind of shit actually does happen. Yeah, and we're not going to get too deep into the theories here, but we'll mention just a couple. 
One such theory is that Gabriel was a special agent or some sort of informant with the RCMP. And why do people think this? Yes, why? There are many reasons. Here are a few. For starters, numerous neighbors and people who worked with and for Gabriel had reported to the police for years that he had illegal firearms, yet the police did nothing. Also, whenever Gabriel seemed to get into any sort of trouble, no matter how serious it was, the police seemed to just let the issues go. Right, he had to pay, what, $50 to a victim fund? Not the actual victim, but to a fund after he beat that teenager up in 2001. 50 bucks. And he got probation for like four months or something like that. I think it was nine years, but oh my! Oh, no, nine months, was, nine months, nine months, nine months. Yeah, I knew it was a matter of months. Yeah, and to, to I don't get that. Me You're the victim, either. but you know what? We're, we're going to have him pay money to the victim fund, not to you, the victim. So Crazy. sorry. All sorts of shit, man. But the police just turned a blind eye whenever anyone in the public made a complaint. There was even an instance when a neighbor had filed a complaint through an email with the local department. And then later, when this whole thing was being disputed with the RCMP, all those emails disappeared. Oh, just conveniently. Couldn't find him anymore. And there were other neighbors who went directly to the police to talk to them in person about Gabriel's illegal firearms. And not only did the police do nothing, as I already said, but they completely denied any such conversations having taken place to begin with, which leads many to think RCMP was protecting him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's shady that, you know, there's somewhat, there's like a little bit of proof of this and they're like, oh no, nope, not us. That wasn't us. Just Just shutting it down. down. Yeah, exactly. People were also very suspicious of Constable Greg Wiley. If you remember him from episode one, he had a 17 plus year long relationship with Gabriel and had visited Gabriel at his house while he was on duty and in official uniform with a police cruiser, no less than 16 times between 2007 and 2008. In Greg's own words, he said that he had at least six people in the community that he used as sources, but he made sure to say that these people were not official sources and that he never kept notes of any discussions that they had. And while we know that the, and while we know that they had a 17-plus year-long relationship now, the public didn't know that a few years ago. And at the time, Greg denied having any relationship with Gabriel. Straight up lying. See, and that's the part that's the spooky part. The part where you're like, this guy is clearly lying yeah, about why this. Why else would you lie about knowing I mean, a 17-plus year relationship? Why else? Yeah, and the only reason would be to be protecting him as a source. And a little side note yeah. on Constable Greg Wiley. Back in 2017, he was one of the responding officers to a complaint by a woman named Susie, Bo- by S- named Susie Butlin against her neighbor, Junior Duggan, for sending her harassing texts. Greg would tell Susie that she was overreacting and told her that Junior had committed no crime. He suggested to Susie that she block Junior's phone number and Facebook account, which she did. There has been no evidence to point to Greg actually going to Junior to ask him questions about the ordeal. It's as if he took Susie's complaints, thought it was a waste of time, and forgot about it. What a horrible standard of justice. This person calls, they want to tell you, hey, this person's making me uncomfortable, and the guy's basically like, yeah, nah, nah. not really. Yeah. Doesn't do anything about it whatsoever. And then three weeks later, Scott Jr. Duggan murdered Susie Butlin by shooting her with a shotgun after a one-man alcohol and cocaine-fueled anger party. He went over to her house and apparently shot her through the door or a window or something, but then he went inside the house and looked at her then left her house and went back to his own where he drank more booze and sorted the fattest line of coke and then got into a chase with the police, which led into a cemetery. 
Nah, you don't want to go down that road. Now it's all used up them cats and dogs. I told you it was a bad road, Lois. It's killed a lot of pets and made a lot of kids unhappy. At least something good come of it, this place. Couldn't plan nothing but corpses here anyway, I guess. You've done it, you stupid old man. Now you gotta undo it. Oh, ain't that real nice? You pulling him in the wagon. I bet he liked that, didn't he? How's your cat, Lois? Won't be much longer now. Just down here a little ways. Yeah, Fred Gwynn. <laughs> Fred Gwynn making an appearance. <laughs> Junior and the cops shot it out for a while until they became too tired to carry on, at which point Junior let them arrest him. Didn't have a solid breakfast in their tummy boxes of Tim Bits and Double Doubles, I guess. I mean, I brush my teeth with Double Doubles. Let's be honest. Yeah. So that's why Greg Wiley is all caught up in, in all of this, because he clearly doesn't take his job seriously or the people's safety. And that's assuming he still works there, which I hope he is not a cop anymore. I mean, I, I'm, I hope so, too. But yeah, clearly just from the beginning there, you know, and then in many other areas beyond just this like super intense case, he demonstrated that he doesn't give a shit about justice whatsoever. And another thing that leads people to believe that Gabriel was an informant is that on February 12th, 2020, he was pulled over by an RCMP officer for, for allegedly speeding in a rural area. At the time, the RCMP had been conducting an undercover operation to take down some Hell's Angels and Associates in Halifax and New Brunswick. The police say that if Wartman was an informant working with the Hell's Angels or their associates, then his cover was now blown by being pulled over. And many think that this may have been the impetus that caused Gabriel to do what he did. But who knows? But the important part of this is that the police openly admit that they often, quote, pull informants over to pass on information to them, end quote. It provides a cover and is nothing new. That's pretty suspicious right there. Just another nail in the coffin of the informant theory, which is looking pretty solid at this point. And in official documents about Gabriel Wartman that have been collected say that Gabriel had been running guns and opioids back and forth over the Canadian-U.S. border for a number of years and had a special clearance to skip all of the usual customs checks. In one hall, Gabriel was allowed to smuggle 10,000 Oxycontin tablets and 15,000 Dilaudid tablets. Both are opioids. And that information was ordered released by a Nova Scotia judge. He was also utilizing a native reservation along the main New Brunswick border to do his smuggling. So clearly, he had help somewhere from people with some power. I mean, if this is actually true and this is coming out, like, then this guy, yeah, he was being propped up. He was, yeah, it's true. The a Nova Scotia yeah, judge, he ordered that exactly. information to be released. So, so it happened. He was trained and he had access to, you know, resources that would normally be re just reserved for authorities alone. And yeah, probably a lot of power, you know, and yeah, I just, it, they made him what he was, is my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they built up this this character here. Exactly. But perhaps the biggest link connecting Gabriel to the RCMP is the fact that he withdrew $475,000 in cash on March 30th, 2020, 19 days before the attack. He withdrew the money from CIBC Intria, which is a subsidiary of the chartered banks that handle currency transactions. This issue with that is that any bank will not just withdraw $475,000 in cash at the time you request it. They don't just open their cash drawer and start counting out $475,000 in cash. That sort of transaction takes a lot of time. 
And one interesting part of this is that resources from both the banking world and those within the RCMP say that that sort of transaction is totally consistent with how the RCMP, quote, funnels money to its confidential informants and agents and is not an option available to private banking customers, end quote. One Mountie, very familiar with the RCMP's techniques used by the force in undercover operations, say that Gabriel could not have collected his own money from Brinks as a private citizen. He said, quote, there's no way a civilian can just make an arrangement like that, end quote. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you wanted to pick up $10,000, that could be difficult for you at your own local branch of banks. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly, this was not a normal type of cash citizen arrangement. Not There's at just no all. way. And he went on to add that Gabriel's transaction was consistent with how the RCMP pays its assets or informants. He said that he had worked on a number of confidential informants cases, and that is exactly how things go. Another Mountie, not familiar with the first Mountie just mentioned, says that Gabriel's ability to withdraw that large sum of cash from Brinks is a clear indication that he had a direct link with the police, calling the transaction RCMP tradecraft. Quote, that's what we do when we need flash money for a buy. We don't keep stashes of money around the office. When we suddenly need a large sum of money to make a buy or something, that's the route we take. End quote. I mean, there, there you go. It's no longer a theory or just a conspiracy. It's what happened. As for what banking experts have to say about it, they do not believe that Gabriel was withdrawing his own money. This person who asked for anonymity would say the following. Quote, when you come into my branch and you want a ton of cash, then I say, you got to give us a couple of days. We put in our Brinks order. I order the money through Brinks. Then when the money arrives, you come back into the branch. I bring you into the back room and I count the money out for you. Sending someone to Brinks to get the money? I've never heard that before. The reason is if I'm a banker and you've deposited your savings in my bank branch, I'm responsible for making sure the money goes to the right person. If you want this money, I'm going to verify your identity and document that. I can't do that if I'm transferring the money to Brinks, end quote. This banking expert says that the RCMP could be able to keep transactions pretty hush-hush by going through Brinks instead of a regular bank to transfer money to informants and agents. Yeah, exactly, because there's not going to be any written record. It's just all based on their word, and they can just say, nope, never happened, and you can't mm -hmm. prove it. Yeah, and really quick here, numerous RCMP spokespeople have consistently tried to say that the RCMP had never had any type of special relationship with Gabriel at all. No relationship with him at all. But we know that to be false because Constable Wiley had a special relationship with Gabriel for over 17 years. Other constables would come forward to say that Gabriel did indeed have certain relationships with officers in the RCMP. Right. So that's just another debunked, you know, yeah. like, yes, obviously you did. A copy of the RCMP operations manual was obtained by a news outlet, McLean's. And within the manual, it states that the RCMP is authorized to mislead everyone except the court in order to conceal the identities of informants and agent sources. And even once in court, these things are kept a secret. Yeah, there's no surprise there. And it makes sense why they would so blatantly lie. The authorities and even Lisa Banfield, Gabriel's common law wife, couldn't give a reasonable explanation as to how Gabriel would have acquired as much money as he did from running his own dentistry office. There's no way he could have accumulated that amount of disposable income from such a practice. Oh, yeah, of course. Not that quickly, anyways. Canada has a system called the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, or FINTRAC, 
which keeps track of all banking transactions. And FinTrack would issue multiple STRs or suspicious transaction reports directly linked to Gabriel. In 2010, three suspicious deposits were made, two cash deposits totaling $200,000 and a partial cashing of a term deposit, whatever that is, for a total of $46,000. And in 2020, three more STRs were issued for suspicious activity. This activity included a number of large cash deposits into various accounts of Gabriel's. Even on the day that the attack started, he had made two deposits to his personal accounts, one for $15,192.66 and another for $37,288. I mean, the majority of the public wouldn't even make one transaction of that size for any reason at any point in their life. And this guy's getting flagged for making multiple transactions, yeah. like huge sums of money. Whether or not Gabriel was a paid informant or an agent with the RCMP, or if he was connected with organized crime, one thing is certain, he was becoming very paranoid with the whole COVID thing and lockdown. Lisa Banfield says that he was growing increasingly worried about the state of the country due to COVID and had been stockpiling food, money, and whatever else that he thought would get him through the crisis. She said that Gabriel would regularly bury cash all over his properties for safekeeping. After the massacre was over and the police began their search through the rubble of one of his burned down properties, they'd come upon a buried metal crate once used to store grenades. Inside were bundles of $100 bills, which added up to $705,000. Whew. Yeah, because that's... Dude almost had know, a just, million dollars, dude. Just normal just stuff laying around, you know. God, man. In their investigations... It became clear that Gabriel was filing fraudulent tax information for years and that he was charging the insurance companies at his dentist business the full amount of each patient's fees by taking cash from the patients at a discount price. The insurance company caught on and filed a suit against him, which Gabriel said he didn't realize was wrong to do, and a settlement would be reached. So it appears that Gabriel was just a really shady dude who was always looking to make just some extra cash, no matter how illegal it was. Yeah, clearly. And so, and it would make sense, like if the informant aspect is true, why he'd be taking these odd jobs to make these like large sums, running guns, running drugs, whatever it is, like whatever backdoor operation was going on with the RCMP. I mean, clearly, he had no scruples about it. You know, he's just like, yeah, no, bring it on, give me the money. Yeah. How much? Show me the money. You know? Exactly. The families are certainly still reeling in the aftermath of the attack. The communities have never been the same. And how could they after something so terrible happening? Plus, just no faith in the local police, I'm sure. Right. And the people don't have a lot of faith in the police around there. Well, in all of Canada, really. The RCMP have been ridiculed time and again for the horrible response times to serious crimes in this massacre. Only prove that. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like they didn't have a plan for this sort of thing. Not at all. And even if they did, they never practiced it. Well, I can say this. They've been given those 130 recommendations to clean their act up and be you know, a better police force. The crazy thing is, about the RCMP, though, they're like the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the Secret Intelligence Service, Homeland Security, the Mossad, Border Patrol, Regional Police, Special Investigators. Like, everything all wrapped up into one force. Really crazy, actually. Plus, they have all their little special forces units like Joint Task Force 2, the cream of the Canadian crop. That is really interesting that there's not as much separation, like bureaus like we have in the United States. Yeah, right. I think they're like the only country that has that sort of unified structure. Governing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the story of Canada's worst mass murder that occurred on April 18th and 19th of the year 2020 including Gabriel Wartman, 23 people lost their lives. 
with another three injured and three dogs. And frankly, it could have been a whole lot worse if this happened before or after the lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, they did kind of, the public lucked out there in that sense, but he still killed so many people. Yeah, man. Just And then the utter mismanagement from the police really added to that. Throughout the entire event from beginning to end, there were a total of 435 confirmed witnesses to the attack. Wow. A lot of witnesses, man. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not already done so, please, 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 please click that subscribe button and like and share us wherever you can and email us at paranautica at gmail.com. Absolutely. And you can follow us on Twitter since more people do use Twitter now. It's Twitter, not Twitter. X. Twitter. 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 I agree. I don't see how he expects people to go along with it. No, it's not exactly a smart PR move. It really isn't. But you know what? Whatever. We're about to see Zuckerberg choke him out. So Unless he sweats his way oh, out of the leg locks. Yeah, he's going to slip out. He's super sweaty. All right, folks. Remember, word of mouth is always the best to get information out there. So help us out and tell all your friends and your family about the show. It would really help, and we'd appreciate it. Yes, and leave random notes on everyone's desk at work or at school or in lockers or wherever you spend your day, maybe even in an open field. I don't know. Just leave notes that tell people to listen to the Paranautica podcast. It helps a lot. And with that, have another great week, everyone, and just know that you are all beautiful, regardless of what those assholes tell you. Absolutely. Y'all look beautiful out there. Have a good one.